morning, everyone. Amos chapter 9, last chapter in the, in the book on page 652. Oh, I've forgotten about that, Ben. Thanks for reminding me not. <laughs> I saw the Lord standing by the altar and he said, Strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left, I will kill with the sword. Not one will get away. None will escape. Though they dig down to the depths of the grave, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from me at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, who touches the earth and it melts, and all who live in it mourn, the whole land rises like the Nile and then sinks like the river of Egypt. He who builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt? and Philistines from Kaftor, and the Arameans from Kir? Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command, and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruin, ruins and build it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the ploughman and the planter by the one treading the grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people, Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Well, let's bow in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we want to thank and praise you for your word. And it's our prayer that uh, knowing that we are weak and that we are sinful, that by your spirit that you would be 
changing our minds and changing our hearts, that uh, we would be men and women who uh, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, rejoice and revel in all of the blessings that we have in him, um, both now and into the future. And we pray in his name. Amen. So I wonder what are your dreams and hopes for your future? Uh, I remember growing up that my hopes were quite simple, really. Uh, I, I hoped that uh, one day I'd have, a, have a, a decent job, that I'd have a happy family and a comfortable home, preferably with a backyard. Uh, that was my dream. And that may not sound hugely ambitious for you, but for me that was actually aspirational. And they're good hopes, aren't they? They're good hopes, they're good dreams. They're the kind of things that uh, many of us would uh, share and we would uh, hope for. Now, of course, if we're serious about what we hope for, then we have to do something about that in the present, don't we? Uh, we can't just, uh, you know, wait for it to happen and not change how we do things now. And in my case, uh, having those kind of hopes and dreams meant that I needed to start taking school more seriously and uh, doing a bit of study. But it's true in many areas of life, isn't it? Our hopes for the future uh, should shape our actions, should ha shape how we live in the present. So what are your hopes for the future? What are your dreams? You know, throughout the book of Amos, the prophet has delivered God's word to the people of Israel with a special focus group being the well-to-do, the elite upper class, the business class. And so I wonder if Amos had asked them that question, if Amos had asked them what their hopes for the future were, what might they say? Uh, more of the same, perhaps. Uh, more wealth, more comfort, and more control over people to achieve those things. One thing which I reckon was probably not in their dreams and their hopes for the future was judgment. I, I don't think that they were thinking about that, do you? And yet, as we've seen throughout Amos, uh, that that was the future that God had planned for them. Uh, judgment we've seen by natural means. So we've seen uh, the prophecies about uh, judgment uh, by famine and plagues and floods uh, and also losing the land that they lived in. Uh, however, in chapter 9 of Amos, which is the last chapter of Amos, and friends, this is the last, you know, we come to the end of this series, we've been working on it for a couple of months, uh, it actually concludes with a promise of a very, very different future. Uh, in fact, it's a great future, uh, not just for ancient Israelites, but for people like us, for you and me as well. And so um, the, the chapter again starts, however, with a vision of judgment. So can I get you to open up your Bibles at Amos chapter 9? And I'm going to read sections of the chapter as we work through it uh, uh, this morning. But I want to start just by looking at uh, verse, verse, the first part of verse 1 where Amos says, I saw the Lord standing by the altar and he said, strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of the people. 
Now, um, this is not actually the first vision that Amos has had, uh, is it? Uh, in chapter 7, he saw, a, uh, he saw visions of destruction. Uh, in chapter 8, which we looked at last week, he saw a vision of a, a basket of, um, what was it? Does anyone remember? A basket of ripe, ripe fruit. And, but there's a difference with this vision, isn't there? And uh, I wonder if you, could, you can tell what the, the difference is. Uh, in verse 1, uh, what is it that he saw? He saw the Lord himself, didn't he? This is a vision of God. And, and what is the Lord doing? Well, we're told that the Lord was standing by the altar. Now, what does that mean? Um, the king at the time, uh, you may recall, was Jeroboam II. Uh, but about 180 years earlier, it was King Jeroboam I who built the shrine at Bethel. Uh, and uh, uh, we read uh, at that time that when he built the shrine at Bethel, that he celebrated uh, the, a feast, a feast where he mimicked uh, a feast that was celebrated in Jerusalem, and that was the Feast of Tabernacles uh, or the, uh, the, the Feast of Shelters. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 12, we're told that King Jeroboam I, uh, when he did that, having built the altar, the shrine at Bethel, that he stood at the altar and that he offered sacrifices as if he were a mediator, a mediator between God and man, as if he was a priest. Now, that's false worship, isn't it? It was a counterfeit celebration, just copying the one that was held in, in, in Jerusalem, and he's a counterfeit priest. But Amos now is prophesying, and he's prophesying at Bethel. That's his location. And here in his vision, it is the Lord God. It is the true king who stands at the altar. And uh, what follows sounds a bit like another story that we, uh, many of us would know from the Bible of um, <clears throat> pillars tumbling down of, of a shrine and crushing people. Does anyone remember where we've seen that sort of... Samson, uh, a bit like Samson when he, uh, when he pushed the, uh, the pillars uh, of the, uh, uh, the temple of the pagan Philistine god Dagon. And so here it is the Lord, though, who does that. Here it is the Lord God who causes the shrine to collapse and it collapses on his own people, crushes them. And this is just the beginning of uh, what really is an inescapable judgment. Uh, let's pick it up at the second part of verse 1 and down to verse 4. Uh, after the, uh, the, the, um, the, 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 the shrine comes down on the heads of the people... It says, those who are left, I will kill with the sword. Not one will get away, none will escape. Though they dig down to the depths of the grave, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, 
there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from me at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil um, or for harm and not for good. Now, is it possible to hide from God? You ever thought about that? I mean, you know, someone can run from the law um, and get away with that for a long time. Uh, they might even be able to uh, run from the law, hide from the law all of their lives. But you can't hide from God, can you? Because in case you haven't noticed, he owns the whole world. <laughs> he created the whole world. He creates, he owns all of creation from the, the skies above to the depths of the sea. I mean, you might find the most remote um, cave in all of the world and try to hide there, but you can't escape from God. He knows where you are. You can't even escape from God even in death. You know, I recently heard of someone who died before they went to court for some things which they had done wrong. And, uh, you know, people didn't like the fact that the person died before going to court because it was said, you know, in the media that the, the person has escaped justice. Well, guess what? No, they haven't. You can't hide from God. You can't escape from his judgment even in death, or as Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, that man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. After death, we all face judgment. And so Israel could not hide from God. Now, sometimes people try to hide, or they not hide so much, they, they try to seek, seek refuge in their spiritual heritage. You know, like the person who says that they, you know, that I, I, I really believe in Jesus and, you know, you know, go to church and the family been part of the church for uh, decades and generations and so on, but they don't actually trust and obey Jesus. They say they believe in Jesus, but they don't actually trust in Jesus and they have a false confidence. They try to take refuge in that... Um, in something which is true, Jesus is true, but they don't actually they haven't actually responded to Jesus. And, and it's just like Israel that they knew that God had brought them out of slavery in Egypt. They knew that God had brought them into the promised land. Um, but in verses five through to seven, Amos reminds Israel that. God is not just their God, but God is the ruler of all of the world. God is the ruler of all nations, all peoples. Um, have a look at verse 7, uh, where it says, Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites? I think they're, they're people who um, from Ethiopia and, uh, you know, relatively insignificant in terms of how, from the Israel, Israel's point of view, but he says, aren't you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up from Egypt um, 
Did I, I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Arameans, or the Syrians, from Kir? And so what's he saying here? He's saying, well, I brought you up out of Egypt, but I also brought the, the Philistines up out of Kaftor. I brought the Arameans up from Kir. I mean, the exodus from Egypt was the defining event for Israel, for their relationship with God. But it's not as if that's just a change of geography. You know, God uh, moved the Cushites. Uh, God changed the geography of the Philistines and the Arameans from, from one place to another. God does that all the time because he's in control of all peoples. Now, Israel's exodus from Egypt is only meaningful if the event defines their lives. If the event leads them to trust in God as their saviour and live with him as their king. Otherwise, uh, irrespective that they come out of Egypt, they are no different from any of the pagan nations around. I think the point, that's the point that's being made here in this section. Now, I remember a few years back, um, my daughter Alyssa and myself uh, had occasion to, to meet a lady who was a complete stranger to us. And uh, after spending a bit of time with this lady, we didn't know anything about her background, but um, we both noticed her character. We both noticed how, uh, how warm, how gentle, how kind uh, she was towards us. And we both had the same thought, thinking, I wonder if she's a Christian. Have you ever you know, experienced that? You meet someone, you don't know anything about them, but you're thinking, I wonder if that person's a Christian. And when we found out that she was a Christian, we were not surprised. We were not surprised. Now, that is very different to when you find out that someone uh, claims to be a Christian and you're actually shocked. <laughs> you're shocked by that because you, you know them and you, you know their lives, you know that their lives are no different well, there seem to be no different from the world around. And I take it that, that that's what Israel was like. They were just like the Philistines. They were just like the Arameans. They were just like the Cushites. And so what's their future? Verse 8. Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth... Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among all nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. So the sinful kingdom and the descendants of Jacob, they're actually two slightly different things. <laughs> they're slightly different things. 
Uh, the, the sinful kingdom, uh, meaning the nation, with its monarchy, with its false religion, with its exploitive commerce, of which the people, the descendants of Jacob, uh, belong, who are not all arrogant, who are not all idolatrous, who are not all exploitive. In fact, many of them were the exploited. Now, when God allows or uh, causes his people to suffer, he does so for various reasons, and one of which is that a sifting uh, takes place. You know, when we sift something, what do we do? We, um, uh, we sift something through a sieve uh, in order to separate um, smaller particles or smaller objects from larger particles or larger objects. And uh, we do so because one of them is more useful, more valuable to us than the other, and we want to separate them. Uh, in verse 9, uh, we're told that a farmer separates the grain of his harvest from the pebbles and from the sticks and all the other stuff that can get caught up in that. And so the, the sieve will allow the grain to fall through, but will, start, will catch the other stuff, the bigger stuff, the pebbles. Now, here, uh, God's judgment is actually a sifting. God would destroy the northern kingdom of Israel, but not everybody would be killed. But in verse 10, those who rejected God's word, they would certainly die by the sword. Men like King Jeroboam, uh, men like Amaziah, the priest who we uh, read about uh, earlier, who in chapter 7, uh, you may recall that he demanded that Amos stop pronouncing judgment and that he go back to where he came from. Shut up and get out. That was the priest's word to Amos. It's men like that, people who, uh, who reject the idea that there will be a judgment and all in Israel who were like that, who loved not God, but love the things of this world. I remember sadly that there was a man in our church 20 years ago or so who had held a church position and he was dying of cancer. And I spent time with him. And when I spent time with him, uh, he told me that there was no such thing as um, life after death, that when you're dead, you're dead, and you just return, you return to nothing. You just don't exist anymore. He held a position in this church. Now, what is that a denial of? Well, one of the things it's a denial of is it's a denial of judgment, isn't it? It's a denial of judgment. And, uh, and therefore, it's a denial of the word of God. And when you deny word, the word of God... Um, you're actually denying God. You're rejecting God. You can't separate God from his word. You can't say that, you know, I believe in God and I trust in God. I just don't listen to what he says about judgment. That is to reject God. And it was like Israel, who in verse 
10, there were people who insisted that despite um, the prophets, despite what Amos had said, they claimed that disaster will not overtake or meet us. Well, guess what? Uh, in 745 BC, the uh, nearby um, kingdom uh, nation of Assyria uh, had a new king. His name was Tiglath-Pileser, which is a great name, I reckon. Um, and um, the third, I think, <laughs> the third. Anyone wanting a baby name? Um, that's a great one, isn't it? But uh, he was an expansionist. And uh, from 745 onward, uh, the kingdom, the nation of Assyria, which was grew in strength and became uh, and developed a, a campaign of expansion and conquest. And so within 25 years, um, through periodic um, military operations, uh, within 25 years, the kingdom of Israel existed no longer. It ceased to exist, with most of its people uh, living in exile. And so what about hope? Well, this is a very bleak picture, isn't it? But it's not how Amos ends. Let's go to verse 11, shall we? Uh, In that day, uh, says the Lord, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord who will do these things. Now, there is a lot packed into that, friends, but let me just draw out a couple of key points from that. Uh, it's interesting that he says that I will rest- God, the Lord says, I will restore David's fallen shelter. And so I wonder what does that mean? What is David's fallen shelter? Um, he, he doesn't say I'm going to restore David's fallen temple or David's fallen city or David's fallen nation. It's David's fallen shelter. What does it mean? Well, let's, let's think back to how this chapter began in verse 1. How did it begin? It began with a vision of the Lord Yahweh standing at the, the altar. Standing at the altar. Now, um, it was the Lord who was standing at the altar. It was not King Jeroboam uh, offering, offering up sacrifices at the Feast of Tabernacles or as it's known as the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Shelters. Uh, it was the Lord because that's false religion. And that is a fallen shelter. But a day would come, a day of hope, then when there would be a king in the line of David who would stand as the true royal mediator between man and God. Uh, Not just between God and Israel, but between God and the people's of all nations, all peoples, peoples like us. Now, in Acts chapter 15, 
Uh, when the gospel of Jesus broke um, out of the, the boundaries of, and, the, and the geography of Judea and was, was preached uh, into other nations and uh, people who were non-Jews, who were Gentiles, heard about Jesus, um, they believed. People believed. They believed that his death had paid for their sins. They believed that Jesus had risen from the grave. They believed that Jesus was now the king over God's kingdom and that he was a royal mediator between God and man. Now, this is not Jews we're talking about. These are Gentiles, pagans, the people of the nations. And I don't think we can appreciate just how radical that was, for, particularly for Jewish people, to think that um, the pagans were actually believing in the God of Israel. And uh, it, it, it was a, an issue that the early Christians had to really process and work through in their minds. Uh, in fact, when, um, when word got back to Jerusalem that uh, this was happening, that Gentiles were believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus, uh, there, an account had to be given of that uh, to, so that the leaders could think, well, well, well what's going on here? And uh, when that did happen, when this astonishing news that Gentiles were turning to Israel's God filtered back to Jerusalem... Uh, in Acts chapter 15, it was the Apostle James who spoke up and he reminded everybody of Amos chapter 9. This is what he did. A and he reminded the leaders that this is what, it, what Amos chapter 9 meant, that David's fallen tent, that his fallen shelter would be restored and the Gentiles would be amongst those who would bear God's name. This was the fulfilment of Amos chapter 9. And that's great hope, isn't it? That's great hope not just for Israel, but that in Jesus, that any person, no matter where they've come from, no matter what their racial background is, no matter, who, no matter how they've lived, can actually now have a relationship with God through what Jesus has done in dying and rising again, in being the perfect mediator, standing at the altar um, between us and, and God the Father. And yet that's not all. Let's pick it up at verse 13. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the ploughman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God. Now, remember back in Amos chapter 5, when um, Amos was denouncing the, 
um, the wealthy exploiters uh, in Israel, uh, that he, <clears throat> he addressed his comments to uh, uh, some people who owned lush vineyards. And he says, though you own lush vineyards, you're never going to drink the wine. <laughs> Remember that? You're not going to drink the wine. Well, this is the opposite to that. This is the opposite to that. But more than that, it's not just a return to the physical land that um, in terms of uh, uh, the Assyrian exile um, was one exile, the Babylonian exile took place in the southern kingdom and uh, people did um, under the time of King Cyrus go and re-establish themselves in the southern kingdom. This is not just a picture of a return to the physical land. This is a picture of abundance. This is a picture of abundance which is just really difficult to describe even in agricultural terms. Because the person who is harvesting the crop gets overtaken by the person who is ploughing the field for the next crop. And the person who is planting the vine is overtaken by the person who is trying to tread the grapes. Because the land is so fertile that the farmer just can't keep up. This is Garden of Eden stuff. Before the fall. When God provided everything for man. Before the fall. After which, by the sweat of your brow. You'll earn your, <clears throat> you'll raise your crops from the dry, dusty earth. This is Garden of Eden. This is return to Eden. And the reason for that is because Jesus has reversed the effects of the fall by taking the curse upon himself for us. But we don't just look back to the account of creation and the fall, do we? No, we look forward to the new creation, to our heavenly hope, where in passages such as Revelation chapter 7, those who have remained faithful to Jesus in this life will in the heavenly future, they will never experience hunger. They will never experience thirst. They will never experience sadness every tear wiped away but rather they will live forever in inexpressible satisfaction and joy in the presence and in the perfect blessing of God so question then is that your future is that your hope for the future now it's great to have hopes for this life isn't it I think that it's important to have dreams and aspirations and set some goals I'm very glad that growing up I decided to knuckle down and start studying <laughs> so I could achieve at least Something in my future. But how we live should actually be shaped 
by our heavenly hope. How we live should be shaped by what we will be in heaven. And the inheritance that we look forward to so that we're not trying to suck out of this life every possible experience that we possibly can as if, you know, um, we should eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. You know, it's been said that uh, many people live for today because they die tomorrow. As Christians, we die today. We die every day. We die for, to self because we live for tomorrow. Because we live for that heavenly future. So therefore, our goal in this life is to grow in godliness. Our goal in this life will be to treat other people with the same um, love, forgiveness and grace by which we have been treated by God in Jesus. And we live in order to tell others about Jesus, that they too may come to share in that great hope that directs our lives. Let's pray. Father, uh, we want to thank you for this um, great ending to the book of Amos. Uh, we thank you, Father God, that um, whilst you judge, you also uh, forgive and you also have a people who will be your very own forever. We pray for ourselves that we wouldn't trust in structures, that we wouldn't trust in religion, that we wouldn't trust in our spiritual heritage, but that we would be people who uh, trust alone in the Lord Jesus Christ, um, your King, your perfect mediator between us and you. We want to thank you that he is that mediator because he's died on the cross and he's risen from the dead, that we may have the sure and certain hope of everlasting life with you. We pray that that would shape our lives now. Amen.